Welcome to Silo Busting, an EPAM Continuum podcast. We're here to bring together a mix of our subject matter experts from our business experience and technology consulting to give an inside look at how integrated consulting actually operates. I'm your host, Macy Donaway, and I welcome you to the first of many provocative conversations designed to help break down the pesky silos in your own organization. In today's episode, we eavesdrop on a conversation between two gentlemen with decades of experience in business transformation. Our first guest, Albert Reese, is SVP and Head of Business Consulting at EPAM Continuum. He's joined by Chris Mashad, VP, Head of Innovation Practice, also at EPAM Continuum. Both Chris and Albert have provided large-scale business transformation advice to numerous Fortune 500 companies, and now they've joined forces to chat about this work. Albert and Chris dive into the topic of intelligent automation to answer questions like, should you be afraid of automation? Can automation make your company more focused and customer-centric? And if you're ready to look to automation, where should you start? You'll learn that automation is not new in business and be shown examples of successful automated processes that we use often but may not think about. Let's hear what they have to say about IA. Hey, Albert. Chris, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Good, thank you. Good. Hey, so I want to chat about intelligent automation. Okay. Um, and it's a topic that uh, I've heard you're a bit of an expert in, so I'm going to ask you some tough questions if that's all right. Tough ones. At least I hope they're tough. Okay. All right, so let's start with um, the amount of confusion that's going on with intelligent automation. And some people might even say fear. Yeah. Some people are scared of intelligent automation. Um, what's your view on that? Should people be scared? No, they shouldn't be scared, Chris. You know, we've seen over many, many years now things being automated. Um, you know, for 50, 60 years, automation has shown up in various places. And that's probably some degree of fear every time it happens. I don't think this level of automation is any different from any other automation we've seen. So, no, people should not be scared. I think I've seen one organization define intelligent process automation is it does the things that people don't want to do in the first place. I like that. I do, too. Yeah, I think I, I heard once, uh, uh, if a robot could do it, why would you want to? <laughs> exactly. But I don't know. The world's changing. It is. I'm also really curious about, um, you mentioned automation's been happening a long time. It has. I'd, I'd love to hear like a historian view of that. Like, so how has it been evolving and, uh, and what's, make, what's making it intelligent now? And uh, yeah, I think you could be a good historian because... Well, I'm not a historian. All right. I can give you Albert's view. How about that? <laughs> Very good. Okay. So, you know, let's go back, um, you know, think about, and this will, will really, I'll really date myself here. Um, the one of the examples I've used in the past is, you know, how did we, how did we record time, uh, working time? You know, if you go back 30, 40 years ago, we were punching time cards, right? We, we had a card, put it in a machine, we punched it. Then suddenly we got to scanning, and we're scanning time. And then, and then as systems continue to evolve, we, can, we did different things, particularly if you were a salaried employee, it became negative time, which was basically we assumed you were working 40 hours a week unless you told us you took a day off, for example, or took a sick day. So you know, automation like that has continued to evolve. We've seen it through a lot of the base systems that we use today, um, how we do finance and track finances and, and expenses. These things have been evolving. 
process automation, frankly, is no different from that. It's just the next evolution of automation we're now seeing in the workplace. So I, I really appreciate the, the, the time um, tracking ana analogy. It's really helpful. Can you extend that into the future and, and share like what's going to make that intelligent in going forward or, or so a different example of like what makes it intelligent in terms of the automation? Uh, for, around time in particular? It, if you can share the time, well, great. I, but. I, so again, I think, the, I think the negative time, again, the assumption that you are working and you're, and you're doing um, what you were intended to do in the first place and only now seeing the exception, right? I didn't, I didn't show up uh, for this reason or it wasn't working during these hours. I think that is certainly the next evolution. Uh, there's any number of other things. You, you, have a, you have a phone, you have a watch. These things are connected, right? So now you have other ways of knowing where people are and what they're doing and when they're there and when they're not there. So, you know, additional evolutions around these smart technologies we carry with us all the time could certainly let people know where you are and what you're doing. I, I really love that extension into, like, the, the devices we have with us become... Uh, they feed the system, and we don't even have to think about it anymore. I don't have to report negative time. I don't have to report positive time. The time's just known. Yeah, and we've, and we've actually started playing around with some of those things, not, not off of smart devices necessarily, um, but for some clients now we're getting into, particularly in the insurance industry, when you think about uh, scheduling um, an adjuster to work on a claim, for example. Mm -hmm. you know, how do we know? We've got 1,000 adjusters, and they have to be certified to look at certain uh, types of claims. How do we know which adjuster to assign? And, and today, or historically, it's been a very manual process. But again, it's work and knowing that they're at work and knowing that they're available to do the next thing. Those are all types of things that we can now automate. Yeah. I, pretty cool. Yeah, those are, those are pretty cool. And I guess maybe in some ways that gets into people feel scared about it because it's so different. But I think once we get used to it, like once we start to experience it, get used to it, it'll become second nature because yeah. it's, it's taking a task away from us. It so is. Well, and that's the fear, right? It's, it's not being able to do the thing that I'm used to being paid for doing today. Right. But um, yeah, again, think about how much fun is it really to sit here and look at who's available to do what? Is that really what you want to do or do you want to go do something that's, that's more value added for your organization and, and frankly for yourself? Yeah, it's great. Great analogy. I've heard you use another fun analogy around um, Y2K yeah. and how that kind of evolved over time. And you've, you've used that as a proxy for how you see uh, automation uh, evolving over time. So for uh, our younger listeners on the, uh, in the audience, maybe you can Like my daughter start, who wasn't born quite in <laughs> yeah, Y2K. Yeah. Start with a little <laughs> bit of context of what Y2K yeah. all was and then uh, bring it home for us on yeah, its, its connection. So yeah. y, Y2K is actually, it's a point in time as opposed, I mean, so we all knew it as an event, right? All of a sudden that, that two-digit uh, two uh, date field wasn't going to work anymore because the, the 19 became 20 and all of a sudden we didn't know what those last two numbers meant. So, you know, it was started as a technological issue, but it's, I think there was an, it's an interesting time frame. Um, again, back to the whole, you know, systems and where were systems at that point. We saw a lot of organizations start to spend a lot of money. They had to, right? They had systems that could not support a four-digit a four date. And so they spent a lot of money putting in systems that could support the four-digit date. And then, of course, the large, the large uh, consulting firms made just buku as a cash off of these organizations. I, I can't remember what the multiplier was, but I want to say it was 10x the licensing fees. It was some ridiculous amount of money. Um, and then we got past that, and our organizations had to figure out, okay, how do we recover that cost? How do we continue to take uh, costs out of our organizations? Um, again, from, from a point of time reference as opposed to the actual technological challenge, uh, we, we saw right behind Y2K, the outsourcing movement began, business process outsourcing. And if you think about that, and I, and I like that correlation and analogy to automation in that, 
you know, wave one of, of business process outsourcing was taking, it was a pure labor arbitrage play, right? So we took our existing processes, the way we do things today as an organization, we had somebody else do it at 20 cents on the dollar, and it was cheaper. So our cost of operations were cheaper. We didn't make anything better. We didn't improve customer experience. We didn't improve service. We didn't improve the way that the work actually flowed. We just did it at a lower cost rate. And I think that analogy moves forward to today, and, and, and where we've seen automation, at least today, is really taking robots to do the work that we're doing it today, as we're doing it today, right? So it's automating, as we would call it, as is. Um, and I think some of our clients now, and hopefully we can talk about this, um, some of our clients now are starting to say, well, hang on a second, you know, stop automating the way I'm doing it, find new ways to, to run my business where automation could be part of that, but not necessarily what's driving it. So, you know, the, that's music to my ears because fundamentally what, what my team's focus on is, is uh, improving customer experience to help our clients succeed in the marketplace in the future. So when you're having those conversations more from starting at maybe perhaps more the technology side, what do you see as some of the challenges to getting organizations to really that realization point that we shouldn't just be automating business as is, but really think strategically, what business are we going to be running tomorrow yeah. and how does automation sit into that? What are the barriers to those conversations? It, well, one is, I think, you know, the platforms and the way the platforms present their tool set. And, um, you know, so we're not out there, well, at least we weren't the initial ones out there selling automation, right? It was the big platform players that are selling automation, what it is, what it does, and how it works. Um, and then there's the, you know, as we step into anything new, we don't necessarily think about it the way it was intended to be thought about. So as organizations uh, do proofs of concept, as they do um, any, any kind of piloting, you know, they, they often underscope it or they want to just test it, right? So does the technology actually do what the technology was set out to do? So can I replace people, you know, through, through intelligent process automation? And the answer clearly is yes, but that's now where we've scoped the program and how we're thinking about it. We're going to take something simple that we're doing today. Uh, that's, there's a lot of, lot of manual activity around it, a lot of transaction, a lot of volume, and we're going to put a robot on that, and oh my gosh, it works. Um, but now we've done something very transactional and very tactical in nature, right? We haven't come back and said, how can this actually change the way my business operates today? Not, can I do it at a lower cost point? Obviously, it can do that. But can I change the way my business operates today? Can I be more focused and more client-centric, customer-centric by doing something different through technology? The, um, the path has been a slow one, I'll, I'll be honest. I don't, we see very few organizations today, although I, th I think it's starting to change. Um, it, it started off very much as a cost play, and I think now the question is starting to be asked, you know, can we do more with these types of technologies? Can we really start to influence uh, the business and the way the business works? We've got some really interesting cases out there now where we've seen conflict within organizations, right, where you might have an IT organization that's got a bucket full of licenses, right, because somebody sold them an enterprise license or they bought a thousand of these darn things, and, and now they've got to do something with it because the money's been spent. That's on IT. And then you've got a part of the business that says, get the cost out, get the cost out, get the cost out. And then you've got another part of the business that's saying, gee, I really want to improve my customer's experience. How do I do that? And you've got to balance these three agendas around. And, and once you get to a happy point where the three are somewhat aligned, now you're starting to look transformational, right? And you're looking at how do I affect the business as opposed to how do I turn this into a transaction? There's a lot of good stuff that you just uh, shared with us right there. We're gonna go deep here, Chris. Yeah, I'm gonna dig, I'm gonna scratch out a couple of those. Right. So um, I'm gonna I'll start with the, where you landed, which is once those three different camps come together, 
and start working together, that's when real transformation starts to happen. Because because I think without that, um, I would suggest that you're really you're chasing costs out, which is a bit of a chase to the bottom. And yes, the use of technology to do that can help give you a short term advantage. But if you're not thinking about that transformation, especially in the world we're living in right now, it puts you at some serious risk. So um, let's talk about transformation a little bit. We hear the word uh, digital transformation a lot. <clears throat> um, I'm curious to know, like, I'll, I'll set you up here to, to riff on this. Like, what's the role of, of intelligent automation, uh, not in digital transformation, but in business transformation? Um, kind of expanding on what you were just talking about. So, it's, you know, it's, it's a component of, and if you start thinking through it, so we're starting, the conversations we're having now that are transformational in nature, and it's funny because I don't think the analysis is vastly different from the analysis we were doing 15, 20 years ago particularly around BPO uh, type, types of engagements and work. So when we think about business transformation, again, if end customers in mind, and, and we start to think about what's of interest and what's important to our customers, you know, it's certainly, and I'm, there's probably very few instances where timeliness and accuracy don't come into play at some point, right? Um, automation can clearly, and digital can clearly influence both of those. But again, you know, let's make sure we understand which is the cart and which is the horse here, right? Um, you know, the cart is, is the digital side of it, is, it, and that's where automation falls as well. Uh, automation is certainly a digital, it's a digital platform, it's a digital response to a business problem. Um, the horse in this case is the customer agenda and, and how we serve our customers and what our customers truly want out of us. If digital solves that problem, fantastic. Digital doesn't always solve all problems, but it certainly is an enabler. Uh, and as it's an enabler, automation is an enabler. So if we want more accurate, if we want uh, faster response times, you know, is there a way to do that through intelligent automation? And the answer, you know, in most cases is yes, but we have to be careful, right? We can't have it do things where our customers are asking for a human experience or a physical experience and we throw digital at them. That is, that's not solving what our customers are looking for. Uh, so we have to be careful, uh, you know, to use it as it's appropriate. Um, we also have to be careful that we're not thinking of it single dimensional, uh, in a single dimension fashion where um, it's always a, a intelligent automation platform type play. It could be any number. It can be digital front ends that lead towards automation on the back end to, to basically speed up uh, a process in the back, you know, behind the scenes. We've seen a lot of these things evolve, you know, over the last two or three years now, where uh, digital solves things and, and addresses customer problems. You know, I think about banking and what you're doing with direct, you know, with the deposits. Now you're doing it on your phone. It's a great example of, you know, there was a digital front end that was created, and there's an awful lot of automation behind that to make that whole thing work you know, seamlessly uh, for you as, an or, as, a, as a customer, right, of, of a bank. Uh, you don't have to go in the branch. That was the problem, right? The problem statement all along was, I don't want to go in the branch. I don't want to be sold a mortgage every time I want to make a deposit. I don't want to deal with the lines. I don't want to deal with that stinking deposit slip, right? So all that stuff said the experience has to change. And there's, I can assure you there's automation from scanning that thing with your phone, that, that, deposit, that check through your phone, all the way through it's showing up now in your account, you know, two seconds later. I think it's a wonderful example of, of where automation, you know, got it right because it started with the customer problem and yeah. that customer problem mapped perfectly to some business advantages of being able to automate these processes and also reduce costs of operating branches and standing up more ATMs and like it was just a lower cost way to provide a better solution to the consumer. So adoption rates super high as a result um, and the business benefits from it as well. So 
I also have to just say, like, I've been doing customer-centered innovation for 20 years, and it is so nice to hear the way you articulate it from the um, from your lens, and 100% agree with you on it. And I guess it shouldn't be that much of a surprise. We've been working on EPAM Continuum for a while now as our integrated uh, consulting offer. Um, I'm going to put you on the spot because you get to throw some arrows at me if you'd like. Like, how well are we <laughs> doing, or all of us who are working on it? Like, how how well are we doing? You know, you're responsible for its success. How are we how are we doing with it? With the integrated consulting. With the integrated consulting. Yeah, you know, I don't. You know, it's interesting. I don't think anyone got up and said, "Hey, guys, this is going to be really easy." Did they? I never. I didn't hear that. No one made me that promise. Um, you know, I I think there's pockets of goodness um, going around. I think. You know, it's, it's not a challenge or hard for me at all to imagine how we connect um, business, I can say business consulting with, with Continuum, management consulting, whatever you want to call my group. Um, but I think if we, even, you know, if we take it down another level with automation and what you guys do, again, there's a, there's a great story to be told there. And, and frankly, we can def- I think we have to you know, think about how we define customer. It's not always the person paying the bill, right? Customer can be internal, customer can be vendors. And, and I think there's a role uh, for Continuum and, and what you guys do in any scenario of how we, how we think about or, or describe customer. Um, so that, you know, that connection's a pretty, pretty easy one for me. Um, I think most of our folks are working pretty well um, with your folks. And we're starting to see pockets of that you know, with the technology consulting group. Um, we're seeing some, some real good connections there. So Albert, one of the things that I've heard, and I, candidly, I, I haven't had direct exposure to it, but I've, I've heard that... Um, Intelligent automation projects can sometimes start off like really intense with a lot of positive progress and then kind of fizzle out. And I'll, I'll ask this naively, like, why does that happen? Um, and what can we do to help our clients, you know, help protect against that with our clients so they get a uh, greater benefit out of those investments? Great question. Uh, I, you know, if I had to sum it up, in a, I would say probably 90% our client readiness is, is what it boils down to. And that can be any number of things. I think the biggest the biggest challenge is pipeline. Do they so they get excited about it? They identify you know what I would call the low hanging fruit, right? Where where can automation make a difference in my business? And again, it's it's automating as is the the volumes we see, the way we see them, why we see them, et cetera. It's not it's not looking at questioning should the volumes even be there. It's again just just tackling what's on their plates today and using automation to do that. So we solve that, and then suddenly we see the fizzle because no one knows where to go next with it. Um, I think right alongside of that, again, from a readiness perspective, do they have the infrastructure in their organization to actually sustain and support an automation program? I mean, these things are not simple. It's funny, when I first got into it, um, my reaction was, well, you know, I've, I've put SAP into 52 countries in the one big bang. You know, how, how hard can this thing be? And it's amazing how complicated it is because when you really get into it, um, you think about you've got a source system and a target system, and you're, you know, in the sim- most simplistic sense, you're moving data across systems and you're doing things to manipulate data that people have been historically doing or traditionally doing. And there's some decision processes that go on, and the robots have to, you know, do make the decisions based on rules, et cetera. Um, but now think about what happens, right? So number one, you're, you're adding a new technology in, and, and that needs to be treated. You would do it like any other technology, software development lifecycle. You need to think about what's the longevity of this thing, how does it pay for itself, who's looking after it, how do I maintain it? If source system changes, if target system change, guess what? 
you know, so this stuff has to be managed and, and looked after almost like it was still a person doing the job. You know, it has to get that kind of care, feeding and attention. And I don't think people go in and our clients don't go in recognizing the amount of effort that takes and governance it takes to be able to do that. So we coach along the way we help them stand up organizations to do that, not really knowing what their end game is because they can't define their end game necessarily. It's really hard to say how many of anything you need to be able to sustain these things. Um, some clients are starting to take it on a bigger scale, you know, and it's great because once you get to a scale play on these things, you, you do start to see the benefits and it, it takes a bit of time to get there, uh, particularly for those who, who do like round one, you know, first set of MVPs or use cases and then peter out and it's, you know, it's, it's just done at that point. Uh, it takes something like uh, what we're doing now in, in pre-discovery and a few other areas to get it restarted to show them where, the, where additional value sits within their organization. So, so for those organizations that do succeed at it and are able to go from um, the, the MVPs and the early uh, experimentation into real scale, I'm going to venture and guess that those organizations are connected between their, their commercial teams and their technology teams and that they're working together because they're actually transforming the business yeah. um, and, and how it is that not just, not just automating yesterday's business, but they're building tomorrow's. Yeah. So um, there's a guy who's been doing this for a while uh, like, do you have tricks and or not tricks, but techniques that you use to help the clients? Jedi mind trick? Yeah, the Jedi mind trick yeah. to help like get, make that happen within client organizations. We're all we're on this we're all in this uh, this job to help serve our clients. Like, yeah, and that's a big play if you can if you can get them to go to get the scale benefit from it and really transform their business. I'm just wondering if if there's any kind of techniques over the years that you've found particularly effective. We we do coach, you know, on what it takes. And now every model can be different. I think that's where the challenge comes. And we talk about the centers of excellence, and that does tend to be, you know, the governing platform, if nothing else. You know, sometimes we'll see COEs be fairly aggressive, pushing the business along. Not sure that's overly effective. Some companies, it probably works better than others. It really depends on who's driving the agenda. Um, is it the COO? Is it the business itself? But, you know, we do have a point of view on, on the centers of excellence and how they operate. Then the question becomes, you know, the services and scope of services and, and who's actually providing them. We've seen everything from fully enabled COEs, which, you know, will have the, um, the BAs, the process consultants, et cetera, uh, and, they, and they will actually go in and do the work within the business, where in other cases we'll see the centers of excellence insist upon, you know, the business driving the agenda themselves. We've got a few clients that actually have said business owns the analysis, business owns the, the business case, bring us the use cases and bring them with a certain level of detail, and then the COE will take it and automate it from there. I think every effective COE we've seen to this point has a combination of IT and process uh, smarts in it, and, and it's a, it tends to be a blend there. The process is fairly generic in nature, so it probably comes out of a PMO or a COO's organization um, sitting there, and then there'll be some participation from IT. You can't do this independent of IT. Organizations where we've seen it that have gone that route uh, have find themselves in trouble pretty quick. Um, you know, the, one of the things we keep hearing now is the citizen developer notion, which just, is, uh, frankly, it scares me to death. I think it scares every CIO to death. But this is where pl the platforms now will give, uh, give their ability to develop code on the desktop. So, Chris, you've got your own little version of, of this platform, and you can go out there just like you would in Excel, right, and, and create macros to do part of your job. Uh, now you start to think about the burden this puts on servers and, and, and potential exposure of data and all the other things. You know, 
all the platforms are supporting this, or the majority of the platforms are, um, organizations are getting excited about it because it's a cheap way to get these things in and running, but they come with, with significant amount of risk. And, and, the, and this is where if IT is not involved, uh, you know, it, you can imagine that again, you go back to Y2K and you think about some of the explos explosions we saw in, uh, in web technologies, right? And uh, go create your own page. And these things popped up everywhere. Oh, I'm not getting the support I want from IT, so I'm going to go use Cold Fusion to build my own little thing over here. Yeah, that happened, and I think we see a little bit of that going on right now with these platforms as well. Hmm. That uh, sounds <laughs> actually pretty dangerous and reckless <laughs> at some level. <laughs> I mean, yeah, maybe it's not quite as bad as I'm imagining it, but it could it could be. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right, so uh, just to wrap things up, I, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Like Again. Again, that's what I do. Um, what are like the two to three best, when you first get the ring, like you first get the, the invite to come talk about intelligent automation, what are the two or three questions that you want to make sure you or, or your team that, that's a, um, having that first call, make sure they explore? What yeah. are the right ones? You know, oftentimes our clients come with an agenda. Um, if it's if it's wide open, like you're almost implying, you know, the first thing that I want my folks to ask is, you know, what are you trying to accomplish? You know, what is the business trying? We have really have got to get our arms wrapped around, uh, you know, the KPIs, the metrics, the business metrics they're trying to influence with an automation program. Um, you know, the second one is, you know, is there a preconceived notion that automation is the solution, or you know, are, again, are we solving a business problem and automation is part of that solution set? So really understanding where automation fits into the conversation, and again, does our client have a have a preconceived notion of of the solution going into it, or, or do we have some freedom to help them think through how we best solve their business problem? You know, and from that point on, you know, we really have to get an understanding of of their landscape. You know, do they have they already invested in certain technologies? If so, what are the technologies? And it's not, you know, the typical run is well, which of the automation platforms do you have? And, and it's, what's really funny now, most of our clients have two. They've, they've uh, invested probably in two that two you know, do fairly different things. Um, but, you know, we have to quickly get the conversation beyond that. You know, is BPM part of this business process management tools, the, you know, the Pegas of the world? You know, are they out there? Do you use process mining uh, types of tools? And, and where do they fit in? Where do you want to start? What, have you, what do you already know? Um, have you done some level of, of discovery? Do you know where you know, the use cases you want to attack and, and why did you pick those use cases? Um, you know, one of the things we've most recently done, and, and it comes out of you know, the, the clients, you know, what the clients are asking us for the first time, proof of concept, come do a proof of concept. My, and this is, this is one we get handed, and I've, I've, I've told my folks, um, first of all, you know, the, 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 the initial reaction you have to have is, is, is a um, vile reaction to not doing one. Uh, you know, because what are we trying to prove at this point? You know, three years ago, when when everyone was asking, you know, for a proof of concept, the technologies weren't proven, right? So, so actually having to prove that these things actually do what they say they're going to do, got it. You know, that that was probably important to. Well, we don't need to do that now. So, what's the next thing we would prove? Well, this would actually work within my organization. Okay. Um, why wouldn't it work in your organization? If other organizations are able to do this, you know, can we get value? And, and the, so th that's really what we're trying to, you know, most proof of concepts or pilots are, starting, are really what they're after is, can I drive value through this type of solution in my organization? And if that's what they're looking for, then look at the scope that you're being handed and, and say, and then challenge that. And this is the other thing we're, we are telling our, our folks to do, look at the scope 
you guys know, right, if you look at the scope of these things, if someone is saying, come, you know, do a proof of concept, this little box in a 45-box flow diagram, go automate that one box, you're not going to show value there, guys. And, and we know that. And so, you know, again, if, if, that's the, uh, if that's the mentality coming into the conversation, you know, we need to figure out how to re reframe that conversation into something to where we can actually demonstrate value. So we've, we've, really, we've really put, um, you know, that is the ask. We've, we've really put a lot of challenging questions around, you know, what do you want to demonstrate and, and do we have an opportunity to really actually show you value differently than what you're thinking right now? I, I love that insight of really challenging why are we doing the proof of concept? And no, we're not doing a proof. And, and, and with the underlying <laughs> motivation that we sh most likely should not be doing right. a proof of concept. Yeah. And it's something we, we actually embrace really uh, strongly here because there's a lot of experimentation going on in the world right now. And there's been this, um, in my opinion, over-index to agile sure. and uh, a desire to just quickly experiment and prototype and fail and move forward. But my question is always to like, what end? What, what are we trying to accomplish yeah. through those experiments? And are we thinking enough about what we want to learn um, and learning from each movement forward versus just trying a lot of interesting experiments? Yeah. So. Yeah, agile. Agile is an interesting one because we're not finding our, we're not finding ourselves able to do most of the automation work in an agile type framework. Yeah. So I mean, again, you think about what we're typically doing. We're moving data. Um, data data has a problem these days, doesn't it? You, know, you, you look at GDPR in Europe. You look at what California is doing. Even PII in this company or country or HIPAA. If, if you're talking medical records, mm -hmm. which you know, if you're in the healthcare space, either provider or payer side. You're moving, per, you know, PII, and you're moving HIPAA type data. So, what we've what we've found, you know, actually we're doing, I think, a pretty good job identifying and working with the clients that, that do it. But you can't you can't get the rules almost right. You know, there's an MVP when you're talking about data and, and people's data uh, is is almost perfection now because the the fines and the penalties for missing it and, and not getting it right are just exorbitant, particularly uh, under GDPR in Europe. So um, we're finding that you know, the requirements have to get fleshed out and we have to be, you know, at least from every bit of data that we are moving, that we're protecting our customers' customers and protecting their data. Uh, so it's, it is taking on, you know, we, I think we go in with the intention of wanting to do it agile. We can certainly build in an agile fashion, but we, we gotta get the requirements nailed. You, you can't get them, you know, 98% is just not good enough anymore. It's too high risk of a bet. Yeah. All right, so in close, um, I'm going to ask you a very human-centered, continuum-esque question. Uh, is intelligent automation, is it making the world better? That is a great question. Uh, you know, again, if we stay focused on what our customers need, you know, first of all, let's, let's go, let's, let's think about our customers, and our customers have their customers, right? So if everybody is in tune with our customers, then I, I have to believe, you know, if, is the world a better place? I don't know. We're certainly doing what people are asking us to do, ultimately. Um, you know, the end consumer are you and I, and, and the people we buy from are paying attention to what you and I want, and then whoever's helping them get to that point uh, is helping them drive what you and I want. Then ultimately, yeah, it is, you know, what, what can we expect out of it? Well, we can expect, you know, better decisions, easier access to information. Uh, we can expect all these things at a lower price point than we pay today, um, higher value services than, than we're getting potentially today. So, you know, it's, it's ultimately meeting the demands of the, the end consumer. Um, so I would think, you know, at least in that regard, yes, do we all want the right things in the world? I don't know. Maybe not. Uh, you know, we could argue fossil fuels hasn't done us a lot of favors over the last couple of years. 
but um, you know, I think we're all evolving and our opinions are changing and that will ultimately affect the products and services we all demand and buy. So um, yeah, I think in the end, it will actually, it'll actually be better with it than without it. Excellent. Awesome. Thank you so much for the time, Albert. Really appreciate the conversation. This has been fun. Thanks, Chris. Thank you to Chris and Albert for the lively tour of the intelligent automation universe. We hope you were inspired to think about how IA could improve your own business. This has been Silo Busting, a podcast from EPAM Continuum. EPAM Continuum integrates business experience and technology consulting focused on accelerating breakthrough ideas into meaningful impact. Why do we do this? Because real opportunities aren't siloed. Thank you.